Good morning. You know, last week we, uh, we looked at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Mark had gone over it the week prior. And then we looked at it last week again because we said that, that, in, that in those two verses, we, uh, we see a biblical truth that can't be overemphasized. And it's the truth that the way that we become like Christ is by what that passage shows us is, is a type of a two-step process, if you will. Uh, the first part, the first part we see on the slide that'll be here any minute. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, and that's kind of what we said was the first step. It's just people who have come to know the mercy of God. This is not for people who haven't met Christ yet. This is for people who, having met Christ, realize because of his mercy, I can present my body to him and say, use me the way you want to, Lord. But there's a second step, and that is the step of not being conformed to this world, which is our natural state. We, we need to not miss that. That's the natural thing that happens to all of us is that we're conformed to this world. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we looked at that last week and the week before because we're trying to, we're trying to get the idea of how does that work? How does it really happen that you take this biblical truth of presenting yourself to the Lord and then in an ongoing way, letting your thinking be transformed. And you may remember last time we looked at four examples. Uh, we looked at what I called a corral, that this corral kind of was four uh, different truths, four different biblical truths, uh, how a person could have assurance of salvation, how a person can know that God will provide for their needs, how, how a person can know that they don't have to give in to sin, how, how a person can know that God's going to use everything in their lives for good if they love him and are called according to his purpose. So we were trying to see how those principles from the scripture could follow this process of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, the idea of, I presented myself to you, Lord, now let my mind change. But today we want to look at something else. We want to look at a different topic entirely, but we want to follow the framework that was laid out last week in the Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the and the idea, the subject that we're going to look at is the subject of justice. Uh, we're going to look at the subject of justice, which I think is a very hot topic right now. I think it's a topic that's somewhat fraught with tension. Um, justice comes from a Latin word that means straight. It's like an invisible plumb line of goodness. That's what justice is. Um, but I think what we have to do today, I, th I think we do well to ask two questions. One question is, um, as a Christian, do I have God's mind on justice and its cousin, mercy? Do I think of justice and mercy the way God does, is basically the idea. But the second question is, I think, increasingly important also, and that is, is what is being sold right now as justice, something that's frequently called social justice, is that the same thing as what God is talking about as biblical justice? Uh, 
And, and as a church, I think we have to contend with these kinds of issues because, see, the potential for me to fall off on one side or the other is too great. And the consequences are huge. I can fall off on the side of ignoring God's definition of justice, so we're going to take a look in a moment at the Bible and see what the Bible says about justice and mercy. Or I can fall off on the side of the world is pressing me into a mold of this is what justice is, so follow our lead. Um, Let's just look. These are the three things we'll do in the sermon. First, let's look at some biblical passages to help define justice God's way. Second, let's find out what some people in our society currently demand that they refer to as justice. And finally, can we see how God's word can help us whether on either side of this difficult issue since his ways are higher than our ways? Can we recognize, wow, I, I need to Romans 12, 1 myself in this direction, or 12, 1 and 2, or I need to do it in this direction. The first passage I'd like us to look at is, is uh, from the oldest book in the Bible. It's from the, the book of Job. And, and uh, as you likely know, the reason we have Job's story 4,000 years after he lived, the reason we have his story is because this is a man who at age 70 is the most well-known, most well-to-do, most well-regarded man in the East. Wonderful reputation. And yet God records how he undeservedly receives more suffering than any man or woman or child has ever gone through. And, and he incurs this great suffering at no cause of his. And we have the story that's the record of that. But there's something I want us to see in it because when we think about Job, listen to, from Job 29. I'm going to read... He says, just as I was in the days of my youth when the protection of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in cream and the rock poured out streams of oil for me. He's referring to what it was like before, just a few weeks before. Namely, that he had the most charmed, most blessed life of any person who probably ever lived. But notice what he says. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. The leaders stopped talking. They put their hands on their mouths. The voices of the prominent people were hushed. Their tongues stuck to their palates. For when an ear heard, it called me blessed. And when an eye saw, it testified in support of me. What he's saying is, that by God's grace, the reputation he had was such that nobody else wanted to talk when he was around. They just wanted to hear him. Uh, some of us are old enough to remember when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Well, this is the original E.F. Hutton. People wanted to hear what Job had to say. But why? Why? Look at what he says next. Because I saved the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of one who was about to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a headband. I was eyes to those who were blind and feet to those who could not walk. I was a father to the poor. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke, broke the jaws of the wicked and rescued the prey from his teeth. What distinguished Job more than his wealth? more than his wisdom was his remarkable compassion for people in need that he took he took personal cost and personal effort to alleviate suffering 
he noticed the people around him. Noticed them enough that it says he investigated the cause that I did not know. Meaning, when he heard about something that was unjust, he actually pursued it. I want to hear more about this. He's not somebody who's getting pushed. He's not somebody who's getting his arm twisted into helping He's doing it because he has the heart of God, and it, this is just what the heart of God looks like. Or do you remember the Proverbs 31 woman, known as the virtuous woman? Great chapter, great description of a godly woman, but you know, right in the middle of all of her wonderful abilities and skills and attitudes, notice what it says, she extends her hand to the poor, she stretches out her hands to the needy. She was doing the very same thing Job was. This woman with multiple businesses, the woman who ran a large household, this woman who provided for her family, this woman who did all these things, she still took time to notice people who were in need and met their need. Or, or Isaiah chapter 58, where God is, God is, is rebuking I, uh, Israel, and he's rebuking them because they've been doing all these religious things like like certain feasts and certain fasts and certain activities that look religious on the outside and God says is this not the fast which I've chosen in other words if you were to do the type of fast I really want here's what it looks like release the bonds of wickedness undo ropes of the yoke let the oppressed go free break every yoke is it not to break your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked cover him not hide yourself from your own flesh and by the way, as he says your own flesh, he's not referring to his own family members. He's just saying that all of us, the people that we see, are all part of our own flesh because they're made in the image of God. And so he's saying they're your flesh and blood. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you offer yourself to the hungry, if you satisfy the need of the afflicted, your light will rise in darkness, your gloom will become like midday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. That is, God will provide for you even when other people might be found wanting because you have looked for a way to lift the suffering. And it might not hurt if we even saw a negative example. From, from the book of Ezekiel, we read, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. We all think we know what he's going to say because we know about Sodom's immorality and we saw how they got judged for it. But look what God says here. It wasn't just their immorality. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. So what brought God's judgment on Sodom? Sure, it was an immorality, but it wasn't just that. It was they, they neglected the poor and the needy. This disposition of God that was shown in the life of Job, that was shown in the Proverbs 31 woman, that was shown in what he describes in Isaiah as what he wants. This disposition of caring for people who have less or who have challenges is just part of the nature of God. Do you see a pattern? Like I do. 
it seems to be that he wants us to bear the cost personally. It seems that he wants us to alleviate suffering for the hungry, the naked, the poor, the wanderer, the one who expresses, uh, to experiences injustice or oppression. Look at another passage from the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verse 30 and following. If you remember in this familiar passage, in chapter 29, a lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Because Jesus has just been talking about how we're to treat our neighbors. And Jesus replies, he says, a man was going down from Jer uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down the road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. That Greek word splengizomai is where we get the word spleen. It means he felt something deep in his gut. And in this story, it's that feeling something deep in your gut that is pleasing to God. Because when you feel something like that and you think rightly about it, you do something. We know the rest. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He gave two days' wages to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I return. Which man, Jesus asked, proved to be the neighbor? And of course, the lawyer asks rightly, answers rightly, well, the one who extended mercy. Jesus says, go and do likewise. You see, we have a picture in the Old Testament, we have a picture in the New Testament that the heart of God is a heart of justice. It's a heart that recognizes the poor and looks for active ways to alleviate that. It's a heart that notices people who have less or who experience deprivation and we take it on ourselves to help lighten that load. Not that we're going to make it all go away. Job never made it all go away. And if we were to follow Isaiah, he's just saying that's the kind of thing that you do, but that doesn't mean it'll all go away. The Proverbs 31 woman, she didn't make all the poor and needy better, ultimately. But she did what she could, where she could, when she could. And so I think the first question that we really have to ask is, is there a theme here? Is there a theme of love? Is there a theme that maybe sometimes God's people lose sight of? We won't look there, but in, in James chapter 1 at the end of the chapter, it, it says that true religion is visiting, visiting widows and orphans in their distress. It's the exact same idea as what we've been seeing. You know, it looks different. When you're bandaging the wounds of a man you don't know on a road who's been beaten by robbers, that looks different than visiting a widow you do know. But in God's mind, it's all part of the same thing. It's recognizing that there are people who have grave needs. And that often we have far, far more capacity to do something about it than we normally recognize.
if I was an employer and I wanted to follow what God is saying, again, we're trying to remember the three things. We want to find out what does God say about justice and mercy. We want to find out what does the world say about justice and mercy. We want to find out is there a way for me to develop discernment so that I can think more like God. That's what we're trying to do. Well, if, if I was an employer and I were following what God's saying, I would want to give as high a wage as I could possibly give to my people. Not being indifferent to profit, but not living for profit. It's good to have a business that produces. It's good to have a business that, that uh, not only provides a service or a good, but that actually can, can create money and money that can be used, but it's recognizing I'm not living for that. So as a businesswoman, as a businessman, am I, when I'm looking at the bottom line, is that my predominant, is that where my heart is? If my heart is on the bottom line predominantly, now I have to keep it going, I have to make money, that's, that's appropriate, but if I think the purpose of business is to make as much money as I can, I have totally fallen into the way the world thinks. And Romans 12, 2 is all, all for me. I've got to stop thinking like the world, but have my mind renewed to think like God does. Because the way he thinks about money is, yes, provide for your family, and then look for ways to use that money that ultimately becomes a blessing to others, people like your employees. Or if I had rental property, would I be careful to do all I could to try to make it a place where a single mom could live and where maybe I could get by. You know, not that I'm not asking you to end up going that, uh, to such a place that you have no money. You've got to have money to eat and to have a roof over your head. But, but is there anything I can do to make it easier for that single mom or for that person maybe of a racial minority who maybe had fewer opportunities and you could actually open a door that facilitates a, a safe housing for them at some cost to you. Why? Well, just because you realize that's just part of the heart of God. I don't know what it would look like for you. We're going to look in a minute at, at what the world is saying about this justice and mercy, and I, th I think there's some severe mistakes from what I see, but but if all we do is notice the mistakes that others are making in the name of justice and mercy, and we ourselves are not pricked and encouraged, if we ourselves don't have that splingizum, that compassion that rises up in our gut that says, I could alleviate this. Maybe I have free afternoons. Maybe I could tutor kids who have a hard time. I could contact a school and say, who really has a hard time where I could possibly tutor them and help extend the time they spend in school and possibly open up future doors for them? I don't know. I know a couple of doctors who have a, a medical practice. Um, it's a concierge practice, which means you pay a certain amount of money at the beginning of the year and all your charges, not hospital, uh, not that, but your tests and all your physicals and all your sick expenses, whenever you need them, they're there. They give you your home phone, they give you their cell phone. You can contact them at any time and all of your basic healthcare needs are taken care of for that one amount. But they also save 10% of their slots. They limit themselves so that they have time for their patients. 
one hour physicals, 30 to 35 minute normal, pa normal patient meetings because they're trying to promote health in addition to help when people are sick. But they save 10% of their spots for people who can't pay for it so that those people too have the exact same medical care that other people do. That's just one thing. And they would, they would probably say that's not accomplishing very much. But you know what? If they've got 300 patients and another 30 who don't pay for it and get the same care, I think it means something to those 30. There are things we can do. We've got a guy in this church who, who works in a trade. Trades right now are the gold. There is so much need in the trades, it's not even funny. The young people, we've been pushing college down people's throats for so long, it's sad. I think we've really missed a, a boat here. And there are trades that are, are right now providing tremendous living and, and for many very satisfying work. We've got a guy here who teaches classes in his trade specifically because he envisions, he says, I want to take these young men and women, I want to take them who, who don't right now have a specific future, but who maybe have some artistic ability, some ability with their hands, I want to get them to where they can get employed and he ends up, if they are short on money, he'll provide the course. He'll cut costs, he'll do anything he can. And as he's doing it, teaching them something they need and getting people employed with really good wages, as he's doing that, he's also sharing Christ. Now that excites me because that's justice on the ground level, like Job. I think as a church, and as individual believers in Christ, and as voters, and as parents, and as families, we've got to ask the question, am I exercising the kind of justice and mercy that God enjoins me to? Am I conforming to Romans 12 too in my thinking about those who are less fortunate or those who have deprivation? I have a good friend of mine, a long time, 40, 40 plus year friend who is an African American and he and I were talking about all this and I was asking him kind of what he thought, what he saw on the ground. He said, well, I think I would say this. He's a committed believer. He said, what I would say is this, if, if my house were on fire and I have two houses to the right and two houses to the left and the fire trucks were to come down from the fire station and they were to pull out their hoses and, and all the firemen and women were coming around grabbing hoses, doing the stuff they do and, and they start shooting water on the roofs of the four houses around me to keep them from catching on fire while my house burns down, I think I would think something's the matter. And he said, John, my concern is that's often what we do in the area of race as believers and social deprivation. Sometimes, sometimes we tend to ignore some really obvious needs. And many times we do it either out of not caring or out of the fear that somehow the gospel would become a social message as opposed to the fact that it's just that the gospel, when it's lived out, includes social blessing and care. That's all. But, and this is a big but, this is part of what I love about God's word, and when I think about Romans 12, about presenting my body, and about being conformed, not to this world, but to his way of thinking, it's this. 
it's never just just this meaning it's never just saying gosh we've got to be compassionate to the poor to those who are less fortunate or whatever and show ways to care for our own body and blood that is for for the people who are like me made in god's image that's that's one side of it but unfortunately right now we we have people who are promoting something that almost sounds like what i've just said it almost sounds like godly justice it almost sounds like godly mercy but i think we have to ask the question whether it is some of you have heard of something called critical theory or critical race theory it, it's an idea developed mainly in the late 80s and, and 90s in academic circles and that critical theory states that structural issues in society have created inequity in society and these structural elements have to be overthrown that's the message of critical theory, that there are structural improprieties and they've got to be overthrown. It means that the ways laws are written and schools are taught and jobs are given and the way police do their job and the ways people are treated in society are unequal for people of color or people with alternate sexual preferences or those with disabilities. They're not merely saying that society has blocked opportunity. They're saying white majority has controlled outcomes so that whites maintain power and marginalized people are oppressed. That is the message. They're saying basically that America is historically, endemically, systematically, systemically racist, period, and everybody is racist unless they're a person of color. Pastor and theologian Vadi Bakum is an African-American who grew up in South LA, mostly without a dad. He's written a recent book called Fault Lines, and it's all about this whole topic of God's justice and what the world is currently trying, much of the world is currently trying to call justice. He points out that an increasing number of evangelical Christians are are buying into this idea of, of uh, social justice or, or, or what critical race theory is pushing. Um, social justice could be defined as the state's redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups in order to achieve social and economic equity. Now, is that the same thing as what we've been talking about, about God's justice? There are increasing numbers of Christians who think it is. InterVarsity Fellowship is a Christian interdenominational organization that especially ministers to college kids. Some of you have known about it, some of you have been part of IB. Uh, they have a major conference, I think it's every two years, uh, called Urbana. And their Urbana 2015, 15,000 college students are coming to be trained to think Christianly. They're taking out part of their Christmas vacation, four days or five days of their Christmas vacation, and spending money to go to a conference where they'll get trained to think Christianly. And in this particular conference, their keynote speaker, Michelle Higgins, said, Black Lives Matter is a movement on mission in the truth of God. She wanted to aggressively encourage them to take part in active support of Black Lives Matter allegedly because of its supposed connection to what I've just gotten through reading the Bible says about God's heart for justice. 
her speech was praised by a vice president of a university called Whitworth University, which calls itself a Christian university in Spokane. He said Higgins has managed to expose the central lie of the church that white people were created to rule and everyone else is created to be ruled, saying that that's the theme of the church. That's what this guy was saying. I don't think he's remotely right. And I don't think she's remotely right that Black Lives Matter is a movement on mission and the truth of God. Remember, this is the same organization which last Sunday had an active support in Minnesota for a man who was shot and killed by police. And, and here's why he was shot and killed by police. He was stealing a car and he was shooting at the police. They returned fire and he was killed. You'd think that lethal fire, when, when a, a crime, a, a felonious crime is being committed and the police officers and others are in danger, you would think that would be okay for people. No, 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 we're gonna protest that this man was killed even though he was shooting at police, even though he was stealing a car. And do you know what? Do you know what broke up the protest? As they were out protesting and showing how wrong this was that the police had done this, the word got out that the man was actually white. And when they found it was white, they all stopped protesting and they broke up. That's not justice, folks. That's not justice in the least. Among other things, the three lesbian founders of this organization state they exist for the purpose of disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Western prescribed nuclear, what that means is a husband and a wife and kids, they want to disrupt that. That's their goal. That's what they've said. And to assure continued access to abortion under any and all circumstances, right up to the point of birth. That's what they think is really important, is disrupting the family and, and supporting abortion under any circumstance. And, and this has been what has become known, and Christians are now saying, oh, I think I'll get down for that. I'll, I'll go along with that. Um, Nini's was a deli in Chicago owned by a same-sex attracted Hispanic guy he lived that lifestyle quite a few years, but then came to know Christ as an adult. His transformation was so complete that he began seeing his restaurant as a ministry opportunity. The way he treated customers made him a legend in Chicago and nationally. His restaurant was voted top 100 restaurants in the country three years in a row. But neighbors came to him a year ago and said, Juan, you have not yet put a Black Lives Matter poster on your restaurant. And he said, no, I haven't. They said, Juan, you need to get down with BLM. Things are not going to go well for you if you don't. This is a guy who was well-known and well-regarded by all socioeconomic level, uh, layers. Uh, uh, Nike had made shoes for his restaurant. Uh, he had been promoted by the Bulls. He had been offered to do a TED Talk. I mean, this guy was well-regarded by everybody as a, a really great guy. And yet, these neighbors... He said to them, look, all lives matter to God, black, brown, white, I'm not prejudiced, but I won't support a group actively promoting homosexuality and abortion. I'm a Christian. The neighbors who have been former friends said, you will not be able to protect your family if you will not show support. Days later, after his family fled, 
from threats against their lives and property. The walls of his restaurant were painted with graffiti featuring the ironic comment, hate cannot exist here. The people who are painting hate cannot exist here were accusing him of hatred. He had a reputation that was anything but that. But the, they're the ones threatening his life and his family's life. That looks a whole lot more like hate to me. When an organization supports the message that was shared by the chairman of Greater New York of Black Lives Matter, if this country doesn't give us what we want, we will burn down this system and we will replace it. And if I'm a Christian and I'm wanting to help those who are disenfranchised, those who are left behind, if I want to cross racial lines and economic lines, praise God we ought to be. The scriptures enjoin us to that. And if we're not thinking that way, and if we're not looking that way, if we're not praying and, and intentionally trying to find out how can I minister, then I think we're failing to apply Romans 12, 2 to ourselves in the area of justice. But if we're going along because the only voice out there doing anything is one that is smack in the face of the, of the cross, smack in the face of the church, smack in the face of Christ, I think we've lost all discernment. The social justice proponents today are promoting something called equity. And equity is not equality. Equality would mean equality of opportunity. And we ought to be doing what we can to help that. We ought to be doing what we can to help mobilize opportunity for people. But what is being pushed is equity, and that means a number of things. Um, one of the leaders in the, in the movement is recommending a new United States constitutional amendment, and that in that constitutional amendment, there would be a board of properly trained people whose job would be to evaluate every single law passed in the United States, federally, statewide, or locally, to evaluate whether or not the results of that law would actually be equitable or not. So that becomes a super court that ultimately evaluates everybody else according to the 10 or 11 or however many people are on that panel. Virginia, just this week, the State Department of Education has said in an effort to make things equitable, in an effort to make things the same for everybody, our plan for 2022 is to disallow students from taking any advanced mathematics until 11th grade. Because if people get advanced mathematics before that, they get a chance to kind of get up ahead on some people. So what's gonna happen if that goes through is that some young black woman who wants to be an engineer and happens to be good at math and, and could handle getting into Calculus or even college ca calculus her junior year has to wait and she'll be two years behind by the time she gets to college. This in an effort to produce sameness or equity. Folks, here's my thought. I don't know where you are on these things. 
But I do know this. I do know that God, in all of these passages where he enjoins us to actually cross lines, racial, socioeconomic, educational, to do what we can to alleviate suffering and to assist, he does not prescribe that that becomes something where people's arms are twisted and they are forced. God's way is not a power play. If it was, he, he can use it. He has all power. What he's doing is he appeals to our heart. And when you have, on the other hand, a group that says not enough is being done, so we're not going to appeal to your heart, but we are going to do this. We're going to threaten your jobs. We're going to threaten your livelihood. We're going to threaten the, the safety and the security of this country and of its children. I think we have to stand against that just as much as I think we have to stand in favor of being a blessing where we can be. And so when I think about this particular passage of Romans 12, 1 and 2, applying it to justice, I have to, for me at least, think this way. Lord, show me where I can cross lines. Show me where I can alleviate suffering. Show me where I can actively make a difference for one or two or three or four people here and there. Show us as a church where we can do that, where we can allow our, our compassion to be engaged where we actually feel something for people. Lord, show us how to do that. But by the same token, Lord, let me not make the mistake of getting into bed with people who are trying to force feed things that are lies and calling them true. Because I think if we do that, it ends badly. So I just encourage you to think about this for yourself. I encourage you to discuss it. I encourage you to seek out the Lord's face. Let's do that together right now. Father, I do know that you are a God of great compassion, and I know that sometimes we are more inflamed about people unrighteously trying to force us into something and people who are lying. We get more inflamed about that than we do about doing good. And I pray that somehow, Father, we might be properly inflamed about each, that we stand against injustice, including the kind where state school and school boards and governments and organizations end up uh, name-calling, chastising, firing, threatening, and trying to control the thought of people, not teaching them how to think, but teaching them what to think. God, I pray that we will stand against that because I think you do. But I also pray, Father, that you would move in us for us to see the needs that are out there because they're many. And frankly, they're disproportionately shared by African Americans, by Hispanics, by Asians, by Native Americans. It's the fact. Many, many, many people uh, in this country have experienced more suffering than some of us will ever know. And I just pray that somehow, somehow you can help us all to meet in the middle. Just show us, Lord, as a church, what it means to care for the poor. And show us how to, at the same time, stand righteously. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>